The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Impenetrable Facade Edition. It's Wednesday, December 11th, 2019. On today's show, Marriage Story is the latest from writer-director Noah Baumbach. It stars Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson as a couple in the excruciating terminal phase of their union as it leads to divorce. And then the original, original gangster, the OOG, Simon Doonan himself, joins us to talk about the fate of yet another great institution uh, facing the axe in the age of the internet the department store window. And finally, the 2010s are almost over. Is the very concept of the decade going with them? Joining me today is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello. Very happy to be here. Uh, And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slate.com. Dana. Good day. Good day. Uh, before we go any further, I have to say, in order to make this call-in show work, we're going to need you to call in and ask us questions. Ask us anything. All you people who've sent us these amazing emails now for the last couple of years, lightly, gently by me, we get the most incredible mail. Just pick up the phone now and ask us a question. Just dial 973-826-0318 and you will be a part, almost inevitably, of our Christmas uh, call-in show. That number, once again, is 973-826-0318. We would love to hear from you. A couple times a year, we've got the strut and the call-in show and the live shows that that uh, break up the total utter gray monotony that is doing the culture <laughs> gap fest. And I really you're really love, selling this, Steve. <laughs> I really, really love the call-in show. Uh, yes, can I get a witness? Oh yeah, the call-in show is the great. Call-in show is the best. I I think I mean I have to say I love it even more than the conundrum show, which is always one of my favorite political gab fests of the year because you don't have to send us conundrums. It doesn't have to be, although it can be something along the lines of you know, would you rather <laughs> battle a lion in a water tank or a fish in a cage or whatever the things is that they answer. <laughs> uh, but you can send us anything you like—a question about culture, about art, about politics, about clothes, about food. It's just a chance for us to basically get into that holiday mode where you sip some toddy and chat. Yeah, it's the best show of the year. And not just because it once made me talk about a book about a mouse architect and lose my (laughs) mind entirely on air in one of my favorite moments of this podcast ever. Um, But no, call in. Steve, what's the number? Uh, That number, once again, is 973-826-0318. You can be serious. You can be silly, playful, somber, uh, existential, uh, jovial, whatever. We'll love it. Marriage Story is the latest movie from writer-director Noah Baumbach. He of the Squid and the Whale fame, Kicking and Screaming, a bunch of other movies. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. In this one, Adam Driver is Charlie, a Manhattan theater director of some importance and considerable self-importance. His work landed him, as he tells us, on the cover of Time Out magazine when he was still in his 20s. It's now earned him a MacArthur, a.k.a. the Genius Grant. Scarlett Johansson plays his wife, Nicole. She's an ex-movie actress who gave up L.A. in a bigger career to be her husband's muse and principal actress. Together, they now have a small child, a boy. When the movie opens, their marriage is already over. In every way, except legally, what follows is both an excavation into the misery that is the last agonizing matrimonial throes and something of a divorce procedural. What is it like to hire lawyers, plot chess moves, and maximally tear down your life partner? Let's listen to a clip. And I agreed to put Henry in school here because your show went to series. I did that knowing that when you were done shooting, he would come back to New York. Honey, we never said that. That may have been your assumption, but we never expressly said that. We did say it. When did we say it? I don't know when we said it, but we said it. I thought, we said it at the time on the phone. Honey, let me finish. Sorry, I keep saying that. I thought that if Henry was happy here and my show continued, that we might do LA for a while. I was not privy to that thought process. The only reason we didn't live here is because you can't imagine desires other than your own, unless they're forced on you. Okay, you wish you hadn't married me, you wish you had a different life, but this is what happened. So what do we do? I don't know. Nora says there's no coming back from this. Fuck Nora, they fucking Nora telling me I always lived in LA, even though I never lived in LA. How could you ever say those things about me? Jay said them about me too. You should have fired Bert. I needed my own asshole. Let's just both agree both of our lawyers said shitty stuff about both of us. Nora was worse. 
Dana, let me start with you. This movie's getting a lot of love from critics and from uh, the Golden Globes. What uh, What about you? You know, somewhat to my own surprise, I really loved this movie. It ended up as a, as a runner-up on my 10 best of the year. In a way, I think it was maybe because I don't think that this movie is cinematically groundbreaking. Where it breaks ground is, you know, in 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 the interpersonal drama and kind of in the sophistication and maturity that that Bombach brings to it as a director. It's not that it's particularly formally innovative, but I think you can even tell from that clip we just heard that it's very engaging as a drama and just beautifully acted by these two leads who are such superstars at this point, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, that it's hard to remember their actors sometimes. Right? It's like Kyla. Ren and Black Widow are getting a divorce. But underneath all of the blockbuster fame that's accreted, accrued onto them, they're both really, really good. And this movie just has a kind of elemental force um, that in addition to drama, like in that clip we heard, it has lots of humor, which we can get into. It has these unexpected musical moments near the end. It's just a very vibrant piece of filmmaking. And uh, I haven't always been the biggest fan of Noah Baumbach. I think this may be the first movie of his that I've really loved without reservation since The Squid and the Whale. And interestingly, those are probably his two most autobiographical movies as well. The Squid and the Whale tells the story just slightly fictionalized of his own parents' divorce when he was a teenager. And this tells the story maybe more fictionalized, but with some very recognizable elements of his divorce from Jennifer Jason Lee about five years ago or so. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I surprised myself by loving it. And I'm also open to critiques of it. I think it's been, since it dropped on Netflix this past weekend, a somewhat divisive movie to judge from my social media. And I'm very curious what you guys think. Uh, as am I, Julia. What did you think? I really, really liked it. I really loved both of their performances. I loved how the movie seems to map out the logic of divorces becoming nasty and cruel and heartbreaking, even when two people fundamentally don't want them to and don't want pain for themselves or their child. Um, I loved the supporting performances. I mean, Laura Dern and Ray Liotta as jerk divorce lawyers, Alan Alda as a kind of pushover divorce lawyer who tries to be a nice guy and finds that that's not the way to to make it all work. Um, or Adam Driver finds that. Uh, you know, the the Julie Haggerty has a wonderful role as the dizzy mother of the Scarlett Johansson character. Merritt Weaver, an incredible actress, plays her sister. There's just wonderful performances all around them. I also really liked this movie's portrayal of parenting and having children. Like there's something about I mean, the performance of the young actor who plays the son is good. Um, but just the writing actually in the writing of it, what is it to parent a kid that age? You know, there's scenes where the kid is wandering around like endlessly recounting the bullet points of some fictional world. And the parent is sort of like nodding along and pretending to be interested. Uh, there's a lot of drama about the kid not peeing when they're supposed to pee and pooping when they're not supposed to poop. And, you know, it's just like the the mundanity of the work of co-parenting, which is part of what you're trying to divvy up in a divorce, is portrayed really, I don't know, I hadn't seen parenting portrayed with such realism in a recent movie I could think of. And I really liked that. I just found it heartbreaking and powerful and good. Uh, yeah, no, it's a gut wrenching film. Um, but, you know, my very first takeaway was never get married. Um, and if you do, <laughs> never get divorced, no matter what, like put up with anything until the grave rather than get divorced. Uh, which led me to my second thought, which is that, you know, in its own negating way, divorce has been a huge institution since the 1970s, and really only since roughly the 60s and the 70s. I mean, 70s was when it became, you know, the, the, the statistic that we're now all familiar with became uh, real, which is that 50% of marriages end in failure. Um, and I was trying to think, has there been a movie like this, Dana? I mean, a divorce procedural, it, the movie is so much more than a divorce procedural, but certainly it is draped around a divorce procedural in which, you know, it's actually fairly minutely observed how you go about acquiring a lawyer, why you do it, how you do it, what the lawyer then does, how you strategize, um, and just how the interpersonal and deeply emotional agonies are assembled around this um, kind of almost Kafka-esque process. And the only thing I came up with is Kramer versus Kramer, which is a very different movie. I mean, it sort of arrived at the first wave of this 
divorce, you know, at the end of the 70s, when when we were only just getting used to divorce and custody battles. It's the iconic custody battle movie. But in essence, Meryl Streep disappears from the movie for the bulk of it, whereas this one is an, is really an attempt to tell both um, stories. Uh, I will register one tiny reservation, which is you are having a voyeuristic peer into the lives of people who have made it in the creative class in a way that Baumbach shows you he has a degree of distance from because he ironizes them gently, not so distancing that you are not right there with them as their insides are being torn to pieces. Um, I, I just didn't love that the kind of life accoutrements of the movie included Genius Grants, Time Out Magazine. I mean, all of that, it just kind of sat with me just a little awkwardly. But I do want to say that that central scene of the movie, the one that's completely unforgettable when all of the protective facade falls away and they're finally saying, expressing to one another the rage they feel for one another and the resentment and uh, everything else has fallen away. It's an extraordinary scene. Um, A lot of what's said is generic, but I think that that's intentional. There's a certain kind of archetypicality to it that I think is important and very real. And by the end of the scene, you realize that they're telling one another that they love each other and still love each other, which gets at what the hard work of being married is better than anything I've seen maybe ever, but certainly in a long time. Well, I'm not sure that's how I read that scene. I mean, I know what scene you're talking about. I guess they're telling each other they love each other. I think in in some marriages, that's where love has gone. But you can only have that depth of feeling for someone if you have really deeply loved them. And it ends with an image of like mutual pity, right? Of a kind that I think only two people who've been that close can express to one another. Well, that's kind of the struggle the movie's about, right? Yes, is to is to turn exactly. the is to turn the currents of loathing and resentment in that scene into some form of of family love that at least with their child they can they can move on. It's interesting, Steve. The critique that you make of the movie is part of what I've seen, um, you know, raging on Twitter about it. It isn't just um, the gossip element of how much of this has to do with his real story with Jennifer Jason Lee and Greta Gerwig, who of course is now his partner that he ended up with after that marriage broke up. Um, but it is also about the the very bougie milieu that this takes place in and whether we want to hear these particular people's stories, whether they're so insulated from the circumstances that 99% of us find ourselves in that we can still relate to them. And I think there is the question where autobiography comes in, right? I mean, if he were to tell the story, if he were to sort of deliberately do a class downgrade on this story in order to make mm-hmm. it appeal to or relate to more people, he wouldn't be telling his own story exactly. to the same degree. Yeah. Um, but, but tied in with that critique of the the economic and financial milieu that this movie takes place in is the question of whether it it shows both sides is the question of whether we get to know and understand both of their stories equally well and i think that's a real question i'm curious what you guys think about it and also whether it's the movie's job to equally show both sides i mean obviously more than kramer versus kramer which is essentially a movie about dustin hoffman's character bonding with his son in the absence of meryl streep the mother um this this movie does cut in between there's parallel stories being told at all times of both Nicole and Charlie and often these rhymes, you know, these sort of things that they couldn't have known paralleling each other in their own lives on separate coasts. But the movie seems to understand Charlie better, if not to believe that he's right, right? I mean, Charlie is at times, as you say, ironized, including for his self-importance about his his work uh, as at the expense of what Nicole might want for her life. But the movie does seem to identify with him a bit more. I feel like we can unpack his character and know what's going on behind his eyes a bit more than we can with Nicole, who remains a mystery. And I'm curious whether that struck either of you, whether you think it's deliberate or intentional, whether you think a different or better movie would give more space to her. That, I think, is part of what plays into the to the gossip stuff, too. But I think you can just read this as a question about the characters without zooming out to whether this is a apologia for the divorce from Noah Baumbach. But I completely agree. There is a way in which, as the text of the movie, Nicole's version of events is supported. She's always wanted to do more. She feels like she put her acting career to the side. She wants to direct, but she never gets to because it's his company. He directs. Uh, and as she pursues this life in TV, 
out back in Los Angeles and sort of wonders like, oh, is this dumb? Like Charlie thinks this is dumb. But eventually she comes into it and and flowers a bit more as a creative force and finds satisfaction in that. And so the plot of the movie you can read as she was right. He was keeping her back and he was sort of subverting her desires and not listening to her. And she does find satisfaction in a life where she isn't sort of the second fiddle muse. However, there are ways in which just her behavior and actions are sort of uneven or inexplicable. One scene I'm thinking of is, okay, so you get the in the encounter between her and Laura Dern. I mean, it seems clear that she's instigated the divorce. She feels trapped. He's basically happy with their life. She has this first meeting with the Laura Dern lawyer who is so, it's such a great seduction. I mean, I would just put it there with all of the great seduction scenes of cinema, even though it's not a romantic seduction. And it's important to buy why would this woman who basically wants to have an amicable divorce end up hiring a shark of a lawyer? And and you you do buy that. But there's a scene later on where he's now trying to find a lawyer in Los Angeles and he goes to a legal office. And it seems like Henry's been there before. And then the receptionist tells him that sometimes during a divorce, uh, you know, one party will go and consult with a bunch of lawyers because once they've been consulted with, they can not agree to work with the other party. And so his pool of lawyers in L.A. is limited. And like, what version of Nicole that we've met would do that? Like, she's so under the sway of Nora, the the lawyer, that she would really do something that strategic and vindictive and thwarty like the mechanism by which she really goes over the top in her stratagems seemed slightly false to me yeah i agree that the laura dern stuff is fascinating i mean and and it's totally a, a seduction i mean this this person's business model seems to be finding women at an extremely vulnerable point in their lives uh, and and talking them into a kind of self-discovery through feminist retribution narrative. Um, but that's a very tricky, tricky thing for a male filmmaker, especially supposedly writing, uh, uh, creating a mea culpa about his own um, divorce to, to go down. It makes her seem... It seemed like a person who really doesn't know her own mind. I mean, it kind of it, what it's meant to do is exonerate her, right? It's meant to produce the drama of an excruciate, legally excruciating divorce, at the cost of rendering her character Nicole a bit of a cipher. Uh, Julia, I think you're right. Um, I do think that there are extremely subtly portrayed moments where it's clear that Nicole still can't represent her unhappiness to Charlie to the Adam Driver character, to her husband. She still is in the role of like mother and wife through a lot of the first phases of the divorce, which is very confusing to him. And I think that that's consciously and beautifully done. So it's confusing to him when she flashes anger, resentment, when the scheduling doesn't work out, when she's not accommodating to him, and when he first realizes that what she wants is like a divorce divorce with a lawyer. Um, Because anything short of that is going to play into his um, unconscious marital will to power, which is exactly the thing she's trying to get away from. So all of that, all of that really, really works. And then I totally agree, Julia, it steps over some weird line. Um, It's hard to keep all of those both character arcs and story arcs all uh, perfectly balanced. And there is a way in which the arc of the movie, in addition to not quite letting you into her head, uh, also proves him right. In the opening scene, he has them with a mediator. They're trying to remember why they loved each other. And she refuses to participate in the exercise. And when you come around to the end of the movie, and I don't think this is a spoiler, he's right. Right? Like, or maybe he's not. It seems like maybe he's right and they should have just done it the nice way all along. But there's a that, that to me was the thing that like ticked over to making the gossip part feel unsettling is like, oh, so is this like just a whole movie and where the text of it is, wow, the woman was right. The guy didn't really see her. She was trapped. It was it was the correct thing. But the subtext is, except he was right and they should have just done it the way that he said. That, I don't, that was I don't see that the ending that. proves him right. Now I want to see the movie again to try to see that. 
I would say that I've seen every movie since Noah Baumbach and Jennifer Jason Lee broke up somewhat with Jennifer Jason Lee glasses on when I watched Francis Ha, right, with the uh, the young woman that, I mean, I wouldn't say he left JJL4, but that he certainly was with very soon after. And it's this Valentine to, you know, this the, to the youth and energy of the lovely Greta Gerwig. I couldn't help but watch that with JJL glasses on, just thinking, really now, is it nice to have a lovely young girlfriend? And yet this movie, which should have been the one that attracted the most of that sentiment of, you know, kind of resentfully connecting elements in the movie with his own life, I think I did it the least. And I think that to me was because I felt him as hard as it might be to get outside of one's own perspective when making a movie about one's own divorce. I saw him trying to make a more capacious work of art that included both points of view. And while I think that there could be a reading of this that's kind of a petty um, autobiographical reading and just saying, look how much he's exonerating himself and turning himself into a MacArthur genius, I feel like the movie struggles with that and is aware of it. In particular, and this is something I really don't want to spoil because it's my favorite part of the movie, but in particular in these opposing musical performances that pop pop up as a total surprise in the last act, not kind of in musical style of characters bursting into song on the street, but in performance venues, right? Because they're both performers. Um, You see each of them sing a song and the songs sort of relate to each other in in a biographical way. And in that pairing, I feel like it was sort of Scarlett Johansson's character, Nicole, who comes out the moral victor in the sense that she has managed to build a rich life for herself and to to see something beyond their divorce. Whereas the Charlie that you see at the end of the movie is lonely and struggling still. Um, okay. I think the panel is uh, relatively unified on this intrigued, but and in some ways darkly thrilled by this uh, look at a, a dissolving marriage. Um, and it's easy for everyone to see it's now on Netflix. So uh, talk to us on email or hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Moving on. All right. Before we go any further, Dana, I'm uh, I'm guessing we have some business. What do you What do you got? Uh, all I've got, Steve, is to hammer one more time the call in number, like some sort of host on a late night infomercial, letting you know that if you want to call in for our holiday, uh, we will answer any question show. You can leave a voicemail at nine seven three eight two six zero three one eight. That's nine seven three eight two six zero three one eight. Other than that, just wanted to tell you about our Slate Plus segment today, which will be a sad farewell to Benjamin Frisch, our longtime producer on the show. He is staying at Slate. We'll still see him around the office here in New York, but he won't be producing our show anymore. So we'll be talking to Ben Frisch about whatever he sees fit to talk about, probably about the history of working on this show, what it's meant to him and what he's doing next. And so, as always, if you want to hear that segment and other Slate Plus segments and get ad-free podcasts every week, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. If you want to support the Culture Gab Fest and all the other podcasts Slate produces, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, what's up? We will have to explain to our children and grandchildren, presumably, if such thing comes to pass, there were once places you went to cinemas to see movies, libraries to find books, parks to wander in, and stores. And when there were stores in cities especially, the really special ones had window displays. It was a feature of my childhood personally to go see them at Christmas time. Saks, Lord and Taylor, Bergdorf, Sefio Schwartz. None of this means anything to the generation coming up. And as Simon Dunan says, we're in a post-window display world. Simon, uh, welcome back to the show. Very good. I should say you're the author of many, many books, including Confessions of a Window Dresser, Tales from the uh, Life of Fashion and Soccer Style and others as well. Uh, you're the perfect person to talk about this uh, subject. When you told the New York Times that we're in a post-window display world, what uh, what did you mean? Well, I guess because I'm so old, I, like you, remember a time when um, windows were sort of the free entertainment for the general public. Um, you know, my childhood, that was it, like walking down to the local department store and looking at the holiday windows. And in New York City, um, Bendels, Bergdorf, Bonwit Teller, um, Gimbals, Lord and Taylor, all these stores that many of which aren't there anymore, offered this incredibly benevolent free entertainment. Like there was no obligation to come in and buy anything. The stores just put on this show to entertain people and give people something to do with their kids and blah, blah, blah. But now, of course, windows are competing with phones. You know, I started noticing that about 10 years ago, I guess, 
people walking down the street outside Barney's and instead of glancing at the windows or glancing around them, they were um, riveted by this small rectangle in their right hand. Uh, Simon, there is a legendary right roster of names who contributed to the creation of the department store window, not just as an enticement, as you say, to enter and buy. You didn't have to do that. You just had to pass by and appreciate what had been, you know, fabricated in the window. But, uh, you know, Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns, Warhol were all uh, display window um, uh, creators, as were you. Talk a little bit about what went into the really remarkable and still underappreciated art of making these windows. Um, Well, actually, the people you named were sort of collaborating artists. There was a guy called Gene Moore at Bonwit Teller and subsequently Tiffany. And he's the one that roped in Warhol and and also Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns. But basically, there were these other guys who were quite well known, especially in the 1970s. Um, and many of them died of AIDS. Uh, Robert Curry. Um, there's so many. Stephen DePetrie. I could go on for hours, you know, all these extraordinary talents in the 60s, 70s, going into the 80s, and many, many of them um, died during the AIDS epidemic. And, uh, you know, window night was this big thing. Everyone would um, get all gussied up and psyched up to do window and then go off dancing at Studio 54 afterwards, you know. So the changing of the windows in in new york was was something people used to wander by on a thursday night and all check out so it was part of the culture in new york not just those artists you mentioned though that they added considerably but the people who were colin birch i mean the names just keep coming into my head of all these incredible guys and you simon i mean you received their legacy and did something new with it in the 80s at barney's um, yeah, well, Barney's, we were in an unusual position because we were downtown, so we were away from all the conventional carriage trade stores, so we could really, and we just sort of extracted ourselves from being a discount store, um, which Barney's was 1923 into the 70s was a discount store, so we extracted ourselves from that so we could really approach it with no preconceived ideas and do all these unconventional windows, and my approach was Coney Island. I always wanted the windows to be very communicative and very fun. And I loved the idea of a sideshow. And so, you know, we did a lot of these fun windows with celebrities of the moment, like Madonna or Tammy Faye Baker, even, you know, taking people who were fun and making caricatures of them, creating windows around them and doing lots of artist collaborations. I mean, you mentioned Warhol, Keith Haring, all these Basquiat, all these people we collaborated with in one way and another during the 1980s and into the 90s. So we because we didn't really have to worry about conforming to any kind of bourgeois carriage trade ideas we could really reinvent what it meant to be a store so i had a lot of fun with it i was very lucky to come to barney's in 1985 and um hit that period where culture was sort of really getting shaken up in the 80s and hip-hop and fashion and style and music it was all coming together um with people like you know madonna herring Warhol, they were becoming this new arty cultural elite. And I wanted my windows to be appreciated by those people. Simon, can I ask you a question? So uh, our phones have disrupted all kinds of things in different ways. So in addition to being what people look at when they walk down the street instead of up and around them and at other pedestrians they might want to avoid crashing into. And at Windows, your phone also is something you can shop on and you can click, 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 you know, whatever boots or whatever else you want to your house, so you don't need to go out shopping. And I think one analogous industry I think about is books, right? So print, people can read Kindles, people can read digitally, people can just stop reading and play games on their phone. But I think there has been a move toward the physical object and the physical experience as, you know, the the local bookstore is a place of community, the book as a as a beautiful objet. I think book design is kind of getting more and more and more extreme and luxe and luscious because they're desperately trying to sell the idea of not just getting bits and bites to you. Do you think that 
shopping has taken a similar turn or taken the opposite turn. One thing that struck me in the New York Times piece about the end of department stores as theater is the idea that there are still department stores, but they're kind of like tucked up away in malls. They don't have quite that same uh, sense of welcome or the plaza or, you know, the, the, the embrace to the street that there might be something, you know, where it is and you go find it when you have business to do. Do you think that retail will ever circle back around to being a, you know, bespoke luxury experience that gets us away from our phones in the way that books does? Or do you reject the whole premise of this question? Um, I think that what we're seeing already and what you're going to see is stores putting an emphasis on the store interior. So, for example, you go to Ralph Lauren or you go to Dover Street, and there are really fun installations on the store interior. What you're seeing ebbing away is this old idea of the sort of diorama at street level. You know, it's a bit counterintuitive if you think about it, the idea of window display. It's like, oh, don't come in. Don't come in shopping. Just stay outside and look at these windows. So what you're seeing now is more emphasis on store interior and, um, you know, the new Nordstrom store, all the press about it. It's not about the windows. It's about the experience of going inside, what you see, what the feel is, the vibe, the furniture, the installation. So that's what's going to happen, I think, more of an emphasis on the store interior. And yes, many of the big um, old uh, institutions are going to bite the dust because in the old days, windows were the primary form of marketing and communication. You know, that was all you had, really, was getting people excited about your shop via your store windows. So they performed a very critical marketing function. And then after that came catalogs. Remember when everyone was getting the J. Crew catalog in the 80s into the 90s? And then after that, the Internet. So everyone who's on their toes is communicating with their customer through social media, you know, people open a store on Etsy and you can look at all these incredible Etsy shops online. So the old idea that you sort of wait till somebody staggers down the street and try and get their attention via a window display is sort of very archaic form of communication. So it makes sense that people should be shifting to other stuff. And then when someone has read about, heard about your store online, on social media, then they get to the store and they open the front door and there's this incredible, alluring, compelling visual. Like Saks Fifth Avenue now has, Rem Coolhouse did all their, this new installation, this stairway, which is colored components of Lucite. It's really gorgeous and definitely worth going to have a look. Simon, it seems like part of what was going on in that era when, when window displays were the sort of prestige calling card of these big department stores is that the window displays could show edgier things and and uh, kind of scenarios that you wouldn't actually come across inside the store, things that were more daring or maybe even offensive to some people. And I know you got in trouble for some of the displays that you made. Can you talk about controversy in window display, whether in your own history or in other famous windows from the past? Um, well, uh, back in the day, you know, we would try different things and Controversy is not something any retailer wants because you want people to love your store and come to your store and you're appealing to a very broad audience. So um, that's not something I ever courted or enjoyed particularly. I always wanted people to be intrigued. So, um, you know, anytime that happened, it was purely accidental and we always changed the window because we're not in the business of offending no one in retail wants to sort of provoke that kind of reaction. But that Coney Island sort of approach, for example, had you displaying things like a model getting sawed in half and things like that, that people sometimes did take offense at, no? Um, well, uh, I don't remember. I, I once did a window years ago in LA with a sort of um, sideshow trick of someone being sawn in half. And I think I did a man in one window and a woman in the other just to sort of even it up. So I was always constantly thinking about how things were going to be perceived and trying to be empathetic and blah, blah, blah. Um, now, obviously, I stopped doing windows 10 years ago. And since that time, 
there's vastly increased sensitivity. So anyone doing Windows now would have to be very on their toes um, to anticipate, um, you know, people taking offense from something or other. Simon, I, I we would be remiss having you here this week and, and not asking you about the end of Barney's, which it's not just the culture of the Windows, but the store itself has uh, gone by the wayside in the last month or so. Can you sing an, an elegy for it or, or tell us what you make of that development? Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to talk about because I went to Barney's in 1985. I've been associated with the company ever since. That's a really long time. And uh, no, it's very painful, but I feel fortunate to have had such a great career in retail and fortunate to have had it at Barney's. And you know, retail isn't easy. People who are not involved in retail think it's easy to sell things to people. It's actually not. Retail is tough. And, um, you know, there's, Manhattan is littered with um, the ghosts of former stores, and, and it's a tough business. But I feel very grateful to have been involved with Barney's and had a career which put a roof over my head, you know, um, and gave me stability, financial stability, medical insurance. You know, um, retail is a great refuge for many people, and I, that's very much how it was for me. So I've got a lot of gratitude about Barney's and a lot of sadness too, and um, obviously feel very bad for all the people that are, you know, lost their jobs. Yeah, it's really, it's such a sadness. One question I have for you. So the one of the points that you made so eloquently in the New York Times piece and here is just that the place where the attraction happens is different. The marketing, the hook, the place where you get them to you doesn't happen on the streets, and that changes the role of windows. Is there, do you see anywhere that kind of devilish marketing flair that excites you? Like, is the Instagram ad a form that you think people are doing interesting things with, or are there other types of uh, marketing that give you any sense of? Joy and mischief. Yeah, I love um, this new sort of mania for collaborations, which is um, it's been going on for a while, but it's really become a big part of how you communicate with customers. I was just looking at Uniqlo, and they do great collaborations with Disney or artists, foundations, and they have a new one with Marimekko, and it's actually great. The product is beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I've, I'm ultimately a product person. If somebody's doing something interesting, an interesting collaboration, um, I noticed um, that there's a lot of interest in collaborating with artists like Keith Haring, who are no longer with us, um, and but there's so many Haring collaborations. Simon, I have one question still related to Windows, but is there any place that's still doing worthy ones if I wanted to take my daughter on a tour of Cool Windows isn't yes. Bergdorf still doing that? Oh, my them? God. I think Bergdorf's, I was never able to sort of give them their, their compliments because I was always fiercely loyal to Barney's. But I have to say Bergdorf's just, oh, my God, this guy, David Hoey, who designs them, is doing a fantastic job. And, um, yeah, Berg, go check out Bergdorf's. But it's really fun to go see all of them. They're still there, you know. Some of them, at least. You can go to Bergdorf and Sachs, and um, you'll find some ent visual entertainment there, definitely. All right. Well, Simon Doonan is the author, most recently, of Drag, The Complete Story. Uh, Simon, what are you working on now? What's the next book? Well, I'm actually... I don't know if it's a secret or not. I'm doing like a... Um, working on a self-help book for Fiden. So I'm very excited about that, and that'll come out next year. I think I need that, Simon. I need you to teach me how to live. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know something I, I don't know. I think I threw everything, all my best advice and tips into it. And it's it, we're just sort of working on the last picture edits and stuff like that. Magnificent. Our pleasure. All right, Simon, it is always uh, just great to have you on the program. Thanks for coming back on. My pleasure. And happy holidays to y'all. The decade as an organizing category of experience is something of a mental convenience and possibly even something of a sham, the product of lazy editors and zeitgeist hustlers. Um, Julia's a lazy editor. I'm a zeitgeist hustler. So that will make for a good segment, maybe. Um, nonetheless, if I say the 60s, you know, it's not like you don't have 
a host of associations that are rooted in something pretty real. The counterculture, Bob Dylan, the Beatles, uh, John Kennedy, on and on, Martin Luther King, the assassinations, on and on. The 70s, the me decade, uh, the energy crisis, Malaise, the 80s, the go-go 80s, Wall Street, Reagan, the greed decade. I mean, it, it seems to describe something quite real. However, according to the um, the writer Catherine Miller in BuzzFeed, who wrote what I think is really an intriguing essay about the phenomenon, we've lost our sense of narrative, and that what happened in this past decade has kind of melted away our sense of what a decade was or could be, thanks preeminently, I think, to the rise of social media, possibly streaming model of TV. Let me turn to you, Julia. The zeitgeist hustler turns to the lazy editor. What do you, uh, what do you make of this argument? Yeah, I don't know. I think there is like a slight trend of essays coming out of BuzzFeed that are like, the experience of my micro generation is so qualitatively different than anything that has ever happened before. And thus, like burnout is a thing that happens to millennials and time doesn't exist anymore. And that is a like very unfair categorization of the work of a very good publication that does a ton of really important, interesting and exciting things in the world. But just sometimes when they could do macro cultural criticism, I'm just like, I mean, <laughs> do things, things have also happened in the past. <laughs> like there's like an ahistoricism about it sometimes that drives me nuts. Um, I agree that time feels weird right now. I also think this is a decade that is like a little bit difficult to categorize because the first half of it was, you know, Obama getting reelected and social change and social media driving deeper awareness of, you know, race and the history of the black experience in America and all kinds of things that I would argue are forces for social good. And then 2016 came along, you know, like, stepping on a rake and just like smacked like-minded people in the face. And the last four years of the decade have been, you know, an Orwellian dystopian time that is very challenging to one's ideas about what this country is or where the world is headed or anything else. So it's harder than usual to look back at the behest of a lazy editor in December of the year that ends in nine and say, ah, yes, the teens, it just was a very bifurcated decade. Now, most decades are have some shift in them. The cultural patterns and behaviors of people don't tidily line up with years ending in zero, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe the like Obama decade is actually the decade. And then, I don't know, the Trump era will be its own time. Not sure. But I just didn't really buy that we live at the end of history. There is one powerful element in her argument, though, I think, which is that, well, for example, when I think about what has probably changed my daily experience in the past decade the most, what she points to is social media and the rise of social media as this, you know, not just a, a recreational tool that you you do at the end of the workday, but a kind of a place, virtual place that you spend the majority of your life in. <laughs> it's a depressingly true fact that since we all got on Twitter in 2009 for a segment for this show, in my case, thinking, oh, I'll try out this weird little technological novelty and then laugh about it and never use it again. Here I am, 70,000 tweets later, <laughs> locked into that platform. I think that point that she makes, that our sense of time and our sense of place have been fragmented by the growing importance of social media in everyday life, is just very much true and, and is very tied to this decade. I mean, Facebook started a bit before, but it really took off in the 2010s. And all of these other things, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, are inventions of this decade. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, what about like the telegram decade and the radio uh, decade and wait, the TV wait. decade? Like, oh, oh how do on. we know? Oh, I used come, to be the place oh, meant on. something. And now I have v images from all the, over the world yes. beamed into my living okay. room. Ah. <laughs> all right. Listen, but there are, there are, there's a historicism and there's a historicism. There are brilliant books of social history about what the railroad did to people's sense of place and time. Uh, they don't, in fact, indulge in some idea that there was this transcendental, totally authentic self, and then along came railroads, and it was obliterated by modernity, right? Of course, that's stupid, but it's ahistorical to say that there aren't genres of social 
uh, intellectual uh, uh, criticism that think about what a new technology does to the way we constitute ourselves as human subjects. There are, are such books about television. There are such books about the printing press, uh, and there are going to be such books about the internet. And and also, it's it's important not to think just because some purely beautiful, authentic inner self never existed and therefore couldn't have been lost that nothing is lost when huge social changes come along. Things are lost, and they ought to be registered. Um, And it's also worth thinking about what our children are going to grow up thinking and doing unconsciously because they grew up already immersed in it and what we as parents owe them as reminders of a way of living that didn't take place substantially in Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I, for one, am grateful for the prophetic mode uh, and thought this essay was wonderful. I thought this person was really trying to think through what social media does to our sense of time um, in terms of time being a chronological, right? So at the most elemental level, something about social media breaks that up into what she calls algorithmic time. The idea that if a substantial part of our consciousness is spent on social media, we are being fed images in an algorithmic way that are that's kind of radically non-narrative and, and micro-tailored to us. Um, and then secondly, narrative time. And she quotes Emily Nussbaum, a critic I'm assuming, Julia, you admire, who herself has written very intelligently in her book about how our sense of narrative and its its relationship to time and unfolding over time in a way where it's non-episodic, it's actually cumulative and self-building in a way um, for stories to unfold uh, over time and how streaming has affected our sense of storytelling. And in fact, the person quoted in this piece to great effect isn't Heidegger, you know, or Steve Metcalf. It's Joss fucking Whedon who says our sense of narrative has undergone a substantial change over the last 10 years, thanks to streaming TV and social media. I think it's worth being attentive to these things without caricaturing the argument as if someone is saying something, you know, preposterously simplistic about some golden age of the self that's been lost. Okay, I am not trying to caricature her argument, but I would like to make an argument against you caricaturing my argument in doing so. (laughs) I am not saying that the teens are like every decade in the past. I am not saying that we shouldn't look seriously at the changes wrought by our current moment in technology. It is true that life has been very different in the last 10 years than it was in the 10 years prior, largely due to social media and technology, and those things are worth thinking about. But I just, I won't we just look back on this decade and be like, oh, that was the decade that a lot of different technological stuff happened. And we'll think of it as a decade because we'll go on living in the world. Like it just, I didn't quite feel like it, it, it stuck the landing of the idea that time has fundamentally changed. It doesn't feel that way to me. I love an old-fashioned Julius Steve Contratomps like the next guy, but let me just ask you a completely plaintive and sincere question, not as an editor, not as an abstract thinker, but as a parent. Wouldn't you think that something of your children's potential selfhood had been lost if all the time they might have spent reading books was spent on social media? Sure, but it's not. (laughs) That's not the point. The point (laughs) is that this essay... This essay is taking off from the sense of that loss extrapolated out and universalized. Like we do live in a world in which, you know, the 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 both the self and the public sphere have have I think it's it's plausible to argue have been reordered and reconceived in pretty substantial ways thanks to the internet and social media as they inevitably were going to be as they were by the printing press. Look, I'm with you, Julia, on this. It, the printing press is what allowed for the possibility of ha- people developing a personal relationship both to themselves and their creator because the Bible could suddenly be printed in vernacular and widely distributed. That did not happen apart from technology. It's not some pure pristine state we were all once in and then lost. I just think it's important. Dana, let me throw this to you. Uh, Julie and I might be on our way to calling divorce lawyers. But um, but that there's some I'm going to make way- you guys write a letter about what you love about each other. The initial <laughs> early stages of thinking through a change of this magnitude has to be prophetic because it's not yet far enough aw- away from us or behind us to be empirical. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that her voice in that article worked for me as a rhetorical device. You know, I don't think that she is actually actually arguing that as as the new year rings in this year, we will all be moving through some timeless apocalypse. But she does at times take an apocalyptic tone in this essay. And 
I think even though that I, as much as usually, maybe even more so, am resistant to discourses about decades and generations and Jordan Catalano mini generations and what it all means in some macro way, uh, I I kind of grooved on this essay because I thought that the changes that she was pointing to were not um, conjured in order to provide fodder for an argument, but were were real changes in the in the social landscape. I mean, the, the non temporality of you know bundling entire shows that are dumped on us that we witness it. Different a chronological times, you know. However, these things mess with our sense of time. It may take another decade for for us to figure out exactly what that does to the social fabric, but it's something qualitatively different than was going on before. So, I, I guess I find myself confusedly siding with Steve. <laughs> Ugh, you guys are it's making me so way. angry. I just felt like this was a like a collapse souffle of an argument. Yes, the experience of looking at social media is different than the experience of reading things or watching things on TV. And that is worth thinking about. I don't think time is bent. I just and I don't <laughs> I didn't think it and I don't think it. And I don't and Emily Nussbaum hasn't persuaded me that it is, and neither has Catherine Miller. But is it even an like, argument? I mean, is it a po- is it a polemical piece or more of an experiential, you know, a sort of description of what it's like to be alive in this disorienting moment? Mm, I think exactly. that was how I how I read it. Yeah. And that's how I experienced time myself. I think maybe Steve and I are just identifying because we ourselves are are disoriented and trying to find some footing in in the late years of this decade all right well uh, julia we agree to disagree and um but but you know i mean let's come at this from another angle which is i, I hadn't even noticed until i started seeing these headlines that it was a you know the year ended in a nine meaning that there were about to be not only end of year but end of decade you know pieces i mean at the p- simplest level what i mean what does characterize the last 10 years what performers what people like what are these lists bringing home to you about the character of the decade that maybe surprises you or you you know when you read it you're like yes that's exactly right i mean what i would not argue with is that social media has changed everything and what it has not very substantially changed my sense of time (laughs) as stipulated, but it has changed my sense of community and my sense of place. I think more like I kind of feel like virtually in conversation with lots of people I've loved at different points in my life. I have a group chat with my high school girls and I have a, you know, Apple photo shared album with a bunch of family members where the kid pictures go. And I like Instagram message with some girl I knew after college one summer who lives out here and I haven't managed to get a drink with yet. Like it just, you can kind of have these little social tendrils out to lots of people in a way that make your relationships feel less bounded by time and space. And I know some people say, oh, those are all thin and shallow and it's not the same as real geographic community. And Maybe I'm thinking about that the way I am because I'm still in the process of building a real geographic community here in my new city. But I like that. I also think social media has made everyone a publisher instead of just making lazy editors like me the arbiters of what gets put into the world. And that has wreaked incredible change in our society, sometimes for ill, but often for good, like the broader conversation about criminal justice reform and police brutality, I think, has to do with the fact that people were able to film encounters with uh, and killings by police officers of unarmed black citizens and make noise about them and make uh, journalistic institutions, you know, which had covered the most egregious of these incidents, but often in the context of local news and not necessarily becoming national news and and make it clear that there is in fact like a national epidemic of uh, misconduct and mistreatment that needs to be thought of as a unified experience of black life in America and and a unified problem of law enforcement in America, even though those are municipal bodies. I attribute that to technology. I think, you know, Trump used technology to forge a new way of communicating with American voters and for all that I do not relish what he has done with the presidency, the notion that he rejected the kind of pat say nothingisms that political discourse had frozen into, you know, it's the same force that engenders a Bernie Sanders or an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like there's a more direct form of communication. So I, I don't know, there's tons of changes. There's lots of changes about space and place and and who gets to publish and what they say and who listens and why. 
um, most of which depower the industry I have committed my life to, but I'm generally in favor of them. Uh, that's yeah, Julia. I agree with all of that. I would add only one thing briefly. The thing that really strikes me is that the the fact that the previous decade is not really defined by Obama, at least for me, is worth lingering over. This is a topic for a longer discussion or a piece to be written. But there's something about Obama's inability to put his impress on the decade the way Clinton did in the '90s and Reagan did in the '80s, um, and the way that made him vulnerable to what's exactly happened. His successor has substantially erased his legacy, not totally, but there's something about Obama not being the dominant figure of the past 10 years that I find A, very revealing and B, incredibly sad. Oh, I don't know if I agree with that at all. I mean, I think I think the whole Trump presidency is is a response to the Obama decade. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, but just like even, the way, the, but even the way you formulate that, right? Like, like, no, you disagree with me. And then the next words out of your mouth are Trump. It's incredibly melancholy and, and, and gets at something real about this country and Obama. Wow. I mean, this is getting so broad and so fascinating that I feel like we all need to just go pursue it over glasses of scotch off mic or something. But to bring it back for a moment to, you know, the culture aspect of the past decade, since this is a culture podcast, I mean, one of my assignments over the past week, which is usually my least favorite assignment of the year, precisely because it makes you have to grapple with these difficult micro questions, was to make not only an end of year list of 10 best movies, but an end of decade list. And that's part of what this end of the decade has manifested itself as journalistically, right, is all of these people um, going through the past 10 years and trying to figure out what mattered and what will last and what in this, you know, ephemeral social media landscape that we're talking about uh, has actually had some sort of lasting effect on people. And so even though list making in that way never feels like a fruitful endeavor to me while I'm doing it, it's after the list is done and posted and I'm reading other people's that it starts to seem like something that is interesting and important. I I never like to have to make those big decisions for myself about what mattered. But to see through all these various looking glass reflections what mattered to other people has actually been a, a very fascinating feature of this this end of year craze for summarizing, you know, summarizing the decade. Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me looking at different people's lists of best movies or best this or best that, um, and New York Mag did an interesting Who Were the 2010s, where they talked to Ta-Nehisi Coates and Kim Kardashian West and um, Jonah Peretti of BuzzFeed and looked at sort of key forces, Kevin Systrom, who created Instagram, key forces who shaped our world this decade, which I also liked as an approach. But just looking at the list of cultural stuff, you know, there is the declinist argument that our attention was shredded and time was bent and all we did was hang out with the Kardashians. But I also think there's an argument that we're living in kind of a exciting cultural moment. Oh, and the, and the sorry, the other declinist argument is that the Avengers took over and nobody made good movies anymore. But I do think that, you know, the way in which digital distribution has allowed for fractured markets, subscription business models, and smaller audiences being markers of success has created like a lot of really interesting and exciting work. Like I think broadly, mm-hmm. yeah. I would take the art and culture of the 20 teens over the art and culture of the 20 aughts. Absolutely um, agree. And, and but like- By a huge it's bought- margin. Yeah. yeah. So that's exciting. Yay. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> yeah. yay that's hard to hard to really end this decade feeling super yay about it but i'll give a tentative yay to the culture of the 20 teens i guess one way of formulating it is that i mean there's there's utopian and dystopian strains that are running through all the things that we're talking about at the same time right i mean the idealism that elected obama ends up dead ending into the nihilism that elected trump and these possibilities that you see, Julia, in social media and streaming and the fragmentation of marketplaces and self-publishing and everyone having a voice right. is is the precise downside, the other side of the coin of, you know, this this horrible welter of social media poison that's swamped so many brains at the same time. So eh, <laughs> I'm, I'm now Larry David in that meme where he's trying to decide between one bad choice and another. <laughs> It's not not reminiscent of the 1970s when you had, you know, absolute nadir of uh, public self-confidence because of failed institutions, assassinations, the energy crisis, uh, the Nixon administration, Watergate and Vietnam. And you had absolutely unequivocally a golden age of cinema, you know, the very cinema that we lament having been destroyed by the blockbuster and then, you know, more recently the superhero blockbuster, you know, dark times required 
dark powers of social introspection. And that's exactly what artists are supposed to do. And in a funny way, over the last five to 10 years, that's exactly what artists have done. So anyway, I hope this generates some um, reader mail. And um, uh, Julia, I'm not going to call my divorce attorney just yet. Never. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steven, since we talked a little bit in our decade segment about my 10 best of the decade and best of the year list, I thought I would just shout out one smaller film on my best of 2019 list that I think probably most people will not have had a chance to see in theaters. It's now streaming in several places, including on Amazon Prime, and it's really, really wonderful. It's this Mexican movie called The Chambermaid. It's directed, it's the feature debut of a, of a young woman, a theater director named Lila Aviles. And without giving away too much about it, it is essentially the story of a house cleaner in a hotel in Mexico City and all the people and stories that she encounters in the course of an apparently boring but secretly fascinating day. In some ways, you might think of this as a sister movie to Roma, which was also about a domestic worker in Mexico, but it's a very different world that it explores, a much smaller scale for one thing, um, but just beautifully acted and observed and full of all kinds of quotidian mysteries. So The Chambermaid, directed by Lila Aviles, it's on Amazon Prime and in other places, and uh, you will not have lost your afternoon if you spend a couple hours watching it. Uh, Julia, what do you got? I also have a movie to recommend. Uh, has either of you seen Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, which came out this year, directed by Timothy Greenfield Sanders? No, no, I have not seen that, and I'm very curious about it. Yeah, not yet. It is so good. It is so worth your time. I think whether you have read every word that Toni Morrison has ever written, or you've only read a few of the greats, uh, and spent some time reading about her when she died earlier this year. So Timothy Greenfield Sanders is a very successful photographer, editorial and art photographer, um, and he's moved in recent years to making documentaries, but I had never seen one. And I went to see this one, and it's just a really fascinating piece of work. He and Toni Morrison had a long friendship after he photographed her several decades ago, and he finally talked her into doing this movie. And in a way, it's sort of the story she's chosen to tell. She had a role in helping choose which people he spoke to for it. She sits uh, and directly addresses the camera and talks about her life. The shots themselves with all of the talking heads are just gorgeous and crisp and uh, several aesthetic levels up from the typical talking head documentary shots. Um, and then as she talks about her life and uh, the arc of her career and the history of black people in America, he uses, I think, 50 different pieces of visual art by mostly by African-American artists. So um, when talking about the Great Migration and, and Toni Morrison's parents and their move from the South to Ohio, you know, it looks back at some of the classic paintings. It, it's just, it's just a beautifully made piece of work. And uh, in addition to teaching you more about her career, it just leaves you feeling deeply inspired and uh, moved to be good in the world. I really loved it. So Toni Morrison, colon, The Pieces I Am. Where can I you recommend. watch it, Julia? Uh, I saw it at a screening out here, but it seems to be rentable on Amazon Prime Video, and I think it may be on Hulu as well. So there's there's places to find it streaming. That's great. I'm going to watch it for sure. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna just uh, be blazingly original here and say that as I've continued to watch Shit's Creek, it's become more important to me than life itself. Um, I love that show so much. <laughs> Every season just deepens and expands its joys, and. Uh, uh, I don't care that this is like stupidly duplicative to uh, uh, refer to it again, but God, that show <laughs> is just so amazing. Um, and um, the benighted few of you who don't understand it, you're you're lost both to me and um, posterity. Another thing that's become clear over the uh, time that I've done this podcast, and I've softened into this like middle aged, you know, ball of kind of relatively self-satisfied dough is that um, I've also uh, developed the taste, the musical taste of a 13-year-old girl because my younger daughter now DJs on our, you know, multiple car trips to like, you know, sleepovers and ballet uh, rehearsals. And um, I love everything that she puts on. Absolutely. And it's completely uninfluenced by me as her father. It's not like she's just sort of reflectively bouncing back to me. 
the you know the garbage that I put in the garbage the kick comes out of her is is totally separate from that. Um, but here are some of the things that she's been putting on. Obviously, King Princess is just fucking amazing. Uh, Joji, I love Joji. Claro, do people listen to Claro? Oh, and this this band that no one has heard of called uh, Boy Scott which is all one word, B-O-Y-S-C-O-T-T. I do not know how she found this, but it's just fucking great. But the one that I'm really love, that just works on me like a drug as soon as it comes on, I'm like, what's this? What's this? Is called The Japanese House. Is anyone here listening to The Japanese House? I haven't understood anything no. you've said for the past 90 seconds. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's fucking hilarious. Uh, anyway, Japanese House is just really super dreamy, really atmospheric just dream pop bedroom pop from this i think posh british young woman named amber bain um kind of concocted off on her own but maybe it's like you know billy eilish has maybe found uh, a, a bigger producer because the production values are amazing on it anyway i i love it there's one song in particular and i can't remember it off the top of my head but it doesn't matter i like the whole record but one song just comes on and like i go into that you know that state that i think we assume house cats are in sort of all the time you know like a kind of narcotic semi-waking semi-sleep state of of like low-level ecstasy right you know i'm a house cat in front of a fucking fire when this song comes on so um anyway the japanese house check it out uh thank you julia thanks steve thanks dana as always you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page that is slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. I say it tiresomely every week. Just now, we got another wonderful email describing going to the little Indian restaurant, Dana, that you and I went to in uh, Vancouver, thanking us for the recommendation, agreeing that it was a total gem, interacting with the owner while there. So um, we love to hear this feedback. Um, you can also interact with us at, uh, on Twitter. We have a Twitter feed. It's at slatecultfest. Our producer is Katya Komkova. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.